Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. I've been working on my true crime podcast more than I expected to after CrimeCon. The loss of Stitcher and a ton of followers to the main podcast has forced me to focus on rebuilding the follower base. I do plan on continuing to do episodes on this podcast as well, but I'll likely be focusing mainly on True Blue Crime for the rest of 2023 and then turn my attention to expanding this podcast and starting the premium podcast in 2024. But before we get into today's episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what this podcast and other podcasts are up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. Many younger people today don't know the name Barry Bremen, a.k.a. the Great Imposter. Barry gained a reputation for gaining entry to major sporting events and posing as either a player or umpire until he was outed by someone. He snuck onto the court during the 1979 and 1981 NBA All-Star Games while wearing a team uniform. The six foot four and lean 30-year-old could fool people from afar, but in each instance, he was caught by one of the members of the team who knew he didn't belong. Also in 1979, he managed to make it onto the field for the MLB All-Star Game and spent half an hour catching fly balls during warm-ups and was only outed when he tried to pose for a photo with a group of future Hall of Famers who didn't recognize him as an MLB All-Star. The following year, he made it onto the field as an umpire for a World Series game before being caught and removed from the field. He also managed to sneak onto the U.S. Open Golf event and shoot an entire practice round in 1979. The following year, he played another practice round at the 1980 U.S. Open, but had such a bad round that people quickly caught on to his deception. His most impressive feat was sneaking onto the field in 1979 dressed as a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. Outfitted with makeup, a wig, and having shaved his legs, he ran onto the field and gave one cheer before security detained him and removed him from the stadium. While Barry's antics were meant to be funny and lighthearted, there are other imposters who have crossed the line into immoral territory with their attempt to assume another person's identity. One of the most famous cases in the world of this started with a missing boy named Nicholas Barclay. This is the story of Nicholas Barclay and the monster known as the Chameleon. On June 13, 1994, a 13-year-old boy named Nicholas Barclay was, pay- was playing basketball at a park in San Antonio, Texas, that was roughly a mile and a half from his home. When he was done playing, he made a call from a payphone to his house to see if he could get a ride home. His half-brother Jason answered the phone, and according to reports, he admonished his much younger sibling by telling him their mother was sleeping and wasn't going to wake up to come pick him up. Nicholas had grown up in a tough environment. His mother had been married before, giving birth to Jason and a girl named Carrie, who were roughly 10 years older than Nicholas. 
Beverly, their mother, had battled abuse and substance issues for much of her life, and in June of 1994, she was working an overnight shift at a local convenience store. Due to his mother's chaotic work schedule and Nicholas's many behavioral issues, by June of 1994, Nicholas had gained a reputation for being a juvenile delinquent and was constantly fighting with his mother and running away. San Antonio police had detained Nicholas for a laundry list of crimes in the early 1990s. He had been caught committing burglaries, stealing shoes, and was constantly skipping school. Even when he was at school, he was verbally abusive towards his teachers, often threatening them when they tried to keep him in line. Due to his troubles with law enforcement, school, and his home life, his mother asked Jason to move into the house to try and control Nicholas. This control may have led to fights between the half-siblings as teachers at school started to notice bruising on Nicholas before he went missing. Now let's return to the day in question. On June 13th, after Jason told Nicholas he wouldn't wake their mother up and he told his brother to walk home, Nicholas didn't return home. When evening arrived and there was still no sign of Nicholas, his mother reported him as a missing person's runaway. Nicholas was due in court the following day, June 14th, and the family and Nicholas believed there was a strong likelihood that he would be placed into a secure group home for an extended period of time. This led many to believe he chose to go missing by running away so that he didn't have to go to a group home. San Antonio police likely didn't take the missing person's report too seriously. Nicholas was a chronic problem child and a habitual runaway, and with a court date the next day, they probably figured Nicholas would eventually return home and it wasn't worth the effort to launch a major investigation. So we'll take a break here and we'll talk about a little bit more about Nicholas's upbringing. So Nicholas was diagnosed with several behavioral issues, including ADHD. This is early 90s, so a lot of the psychological studies on children, things like oppositional defiance disorder, ADHD, we don't have the understanding about him that we do now. And so Nicholas is raised in this environment. Uh, it never mentioned a father. And again, that, that can be common in households. But Nicholas is growing up, really, it appears, without any type of a father figure. His mother said that she was involved with drugs uh, throughout much of his life. So he's likely not under a lot of supervision while he's growing up and even though his mother was working a job at this point she's gone all night sleeping all day so there really again is not much in in terms of parental supervision now he's 13 years old he doesn't need a ton of parental supervision but i'm gonna guess that in the years that he did need that parental supervision those formative years coming out of being a toddler and a child he likely also didn't get the supervision kind of did did his own thing and and eventually that's going to catch up with these crimes with him running away with his truancy all that kind of stuff so and i'll admit during my time as a police officer i would get these missing persons reports from these troubled youth and habitual runaways and while i would take the report it's a lot different to take a report from a 13 14 year old kid who's run away a dozen times two dozen times they go to friends houses crash on the couches of 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 friends or sleep on the floor and their 
friend's bedroom for a weekend because they got in a fight with their parents and eventually they show back up on Sunday night or or Monday morning or whatever it might be and so after a certain point you're not going to launch a full-out child abduction missing child investigation when this is a pattern that has been established by this child of running away being gone for a few days and coming back on their own so my guess is san antonio pd felt the same way you know nicholas has run away again it's right before he's supposed to go to court the court's likely going to order him to go to this secure group home kind of like a juvenile delinquency center where he's going to have to follow strict rules and not have the freedoms that he has in his current life. So everything kind of lined up that, okay, maybe just Nicholas is running away from facing the consequences for what he's done. And, you know, when we talk about these cases, if there wasn't an observed abduction, if somebody didn't see somebody get taken, it is often difficult for the police, unless it's a very small child, you know, two or three year old that's out playing in the yard and then goes missing. If it's a, a child of 12, 13, 14 plus years old that goes missing, I mean, he was off playing basketball all day by himself. Who's to say that he didn't go to a friend's house? that was closer to the basketball court to play some video games or watch some movies and he's just hanging out there. You know, again, it's, it's every circumstance is different. It's just nothing at the beginning of this would have led investigators to believe that Nicholas was never going to be seen again. So I'm not faulting the police. I know a lot of people will jump on any case where a child end up goes missing and is never seen from again that they didn't launch this full investigation at the very beginning but you have to look at it from the standpoint that if every time a child ran away or purposely went missing if, if you put all of the department's resources into trying to find this child there'd be no other resources to solve crimes to respond to people's calls for service anything like that because this just this happens in every major city multiple times a day where a child decides to run away it's just again it's it's one of those things that in hindsight yes it would have been much better for the overall investigation had they tried to track down nicholas that evening and and figured out where he could have gone or or a better timeline or find some eyewitnesses that might have seen him walking but Again, it's that that's not something that's going to be done every time a troubled teen goes missing. And I, you know, I keep using the term troubled teen. I get that some people are going to say it doesn't matter whether they're troubled or they're the perfect angel of a teenager that should be treated the same. I get that. It just it creates different circumstances because you have a pattern of behavior here and some known facts that the police department can use to decide whether or not to launch this major investigation. If this was a 12-year-old kid who never ran away, who followed all the rules, who wouldn't be late for dinner or anything like that, and suddenly that kid is missing, again, those are just different circumstances. And it's, it's not about the individual kid themselves. It's about the circumstances surrounding the the child's past behaviors and the, the current situation. So again, I kind of went off on a really long tangent there, but some people will jump all over 
law enforcement every time I, I read one of these cases where a child has gone missing and you, you can't play the armchair quarterback 2020 knowing everything you now know now why didn't they respond differently just you just have to look at what they knew at that time unfortunately days would turn into weeks and months and finally years and there's no sign of Nicholas Sparkley what had begun as a simple missing persons report had become a potential abduction and murder that was overlooked in the beginning and was a cold case by the time anyone got around to investigating it. And th- and that's really the downside to resource triage is what I'll call it when officers, detectives, administrators at a police department will decide how much resources need to go into any certain cases. In a case like this, by the time somebody finally goes, okay, we should have probably heard from Nicholas by now, let's start looking into this. By the time they even get to that point, most of their eyewitnesses will have not remembered seeing Nicholas or have very bad memory recollection of what happened. So by the time they actually realized we should probably be doing some type of an abduction and potential murder investigation, it's already almost a cold case. But then came the phone call that cemented this case in true crime history. Police in Spain called American authorities to tell them they had located Nicholas Barclay alive in Spain. According to Spanish police, Nicholas approached a police station and told them he was an American teenager who had been kidnapped and sold into a child sex slave ring in Europe. The perpetrators of the ring were high-ranking politicians and wealthy individuals, and they had gone to great lengths to hide the American child in Spain. Stories of medical experiments to include changing eye colors and hair colors were given to explain how the blonde-haired and blue-eyed 13-year-old Nicholas had become a brown-haired, brown-eyed 16-year-old. Nicholas's half-sister Carrie flew over to Spain, and the 30-year-old sibling met with Nicholas and confirmed for authorities that it was in fact Nicholas, and everyone celebrated the return of the missing and troubled teen. While the outside world saw the return of the American teenager from captivity in Spain as nothing short of a miracle, it didn't take long for those closest to Nicholas to start to raise concerns. Mainly, Nicholas struggled with remembering even some of the most basic knowledge from his life before his abduction. He looked different, and he looked a lot older than most people thought he should. Some people would try to explain this away, stating he suffered terrible cycle logical and physical terror for three years and the effects of massive stress and trauma on appearances had been well studied. There are many examples of photos of young soldiers leaving for war and returning a few years later looking like they had aged 20 years. So some just felt Nicholas was already at an age when growth and hormones rapidly change a boy's appearance and the process was simply exaggerated by the conditions that he had faced. But as the months passed more and more people got suspicious. A private investigator took it upon himself to get to the truth. While accelerated signs of aging and changing hair and eye color was somewhat explainable, the private investigator noticed something that shouldn't have changed, which was Nicholas's ear shape. The FBI was notified of the concerns of this private investigator, and they obtained a court order in February of 1998, five months after he came to America, to test the fingerprints and DNA of the person claiming to be Nicholas. It came to no surprise to many that the prints and DNA did not match Nicholas, and instead they came back to a 23-year-old French con artist with a history of stealing identities. I won't spend a ton of time on Frederick Bourdain, as this story is mostly about the real Nicholas Barclay, but it's important to talk about how the two stories intertwine. 
Frederick Bourdin was born on June 13, 1974 in France. It is said that he was raised by his grandparents and that he never met his father. He ran away from his grandparents' home and spent time on the streets and living in shelters in Europe. Around the age of 16, he started stealing identities in order to obtain more services, and by 1997, he was running out of options as he was getting older and it became harder for him to pass as a teenager. I'm not an expert on homeless services in Europe, but I have to imagine that while Frederick was a teenager, an actual teenager, it was probably easier for him to get into different charitable services that would provide him food and shelter and and different things. And as he quote unquote aged out and became an adult, a lot of those services started to dry up. So he likely got the idea to start stealing identities of these other homeless youth, runaway youth, so that he can stay in these shelters and and do this kind of thing. Because it said he started around 1990. He would have been about 16 years old when he started stealing identities. So I think he was probably seeing the writing on the wall, realizing that his meal ticket, these shelters and places of safety and food were about to dry up. And so he needed to start passing for younger and younger children. And it was in 1997 that he's able to hop onto the internet and found the story of Nicholas Barclay. And Frederick would later say he never meant to hurt anyone. He just wanted to be loved and felt if he could pose as the missing child that he would be loved. After his ruse was discovered in 1998, Frederick was arrested and pled guilty to perjury and passport fraud and was sentenced to six years in prison. The sentence was considered harsh by judicial standards as it was twice the recommended time, but many felt the heavy sentence was necessary for the additional harm he caused Nicholas's family. Beverly and the rest of the family were obviously crushed by the news that their loved one had not been miraculously returned and his disappearance was still a mystery. And not long after Frederick's arrest, Jason, his half-brother, died of a drug overdose. As of 2023, no one knows what happened to Nicholas on that fateful day, but the Frederick Bourdon part of the story provides some interesting insight into the case. But first, we'll cover the most simple theories for the case before we dissect some of the theories brought up by Frederick's involvement. So the first theory is that Nicholas was abducted. This may have occurred after someone saw him walking home and offered him a ride, because it was later said that Nicholas had no fear of accepting rides from strangers or it could have been someone watching him play basketball that day, but this theory revolves around the abduction, kidnapping, and disposal of Nicholas in such a way that he has never been found. For many, this is the most simple and the most likely theory. Like we covered in episode one of True Blue Crime, which is the Jacob Wetterling case, Jacob Wetterling was close to Nicholas's age, and when he was taken, his kidnapping was witnessed by his brother and his best friend. Despite knowing Jacob was taken and exactly where the kidnapping occurred, it took a major break in the case after almost 30 years and a plea bargain with the killer in order to find Jacob. So if Nicholas was taken from a much busier and more populous area than Jacob, the chances of finding the person responsible and finding Nicholas are very slim, but it remains one of the most compelling theories for the case. And I only draw the comparisons between Jacob's case and Nicholas's case. Again, they're roughly the same age when when they're abducted. Similar circumstances, returning from an activity. In Jacob's case, it was going to rent movies. 
But the reason I draw these comparisons is in Jacob's case, he's out there biking with his brother and his best friend. They know that Jacob is taken. They bike back after they're released by the kidnapper. They bike back to Jacob's house. And within 20 minutes, there is a police response to the area, a flooding of law enforcement officials to the area and then you have this full-blown investigation you have the national guard out searching you have all this stuff going on and it still takes years and years and years almost 30 years before somebody is identified as a suspect and eventually it takes offering a plea deal that means that they're going to see no prison time for what they did to jacob before this the suspect in that case was willing to tell investigators what actually happened and where they could find Jacob's body. And Jacob was taken from a pretty rural area. And so the suspect pool, uh, the, the guy who eventually was found to have been involved in Jacob's kidnapping, he was actually a suspect early on in the investigation uh, because there just there weren't that many people to, to choose from. So now if you're talking about a potential unwitnessed abduction of Nicholas, we don't have an exact time frame, an area in which he was taken from, and we have a very delayed police response and investigation to, to this. I said if, if it took almost 30 years to find Jacob under similar but also very different circumstances, the circumstances in Nicholas's case are even more difficult. So if he was in fact abducted killed and and his body was disposed of it could explain why nobody's ever seen or, or heard from nicholas again and the second theory revolves around the idea that nicholas ran away because of the impending court date and the fact that he didn't want to live in the juvenile facility this makes some sense and in the september and in September of 1994, four months after Nicholas went missing, Jason called San Antonio police stating he saw Nicholas trying to break into the family garage. Obviously, Jason would know what his brother looked like, so if this sighting is true, it means Nicholas was alive months after he was last seen, meaning the abduction and murder theory, at least one that occurred on the day he went missing, can't be true. So some people point to this citing this phone call to police by Jason four months after Nicholas was reporting missing as proof that Nicholas wasn't abducted. He just ran away and was likely spent the entire summer at friend's house. However, that might have happened that the parents didn't realize that Nicholas shouldn't be there that long. Whatever the case might be, and eventually September rolls around and it's probably a little bit harder for a kid to pretend to not be going to school and all that kind of stuff tries to break into the garage likely to steal something of value or, or something along those lines and Jason catches him he bolts and now this is proof that Nicholas is still alive and that at least at that point September of 1994 he's still alive has not been abducted has not been murdered or body not disposed of now you could argue that if this sighting is true in september 1994 that does not mean that after september of 1994 after the sighting that something could not have happened to nicholas because clearly it could have he, he could have fled from that garage and within hours days weeks however you want to look at it 
he could have run to the wrong person in the wrong situation and ended up getting himself uh, killed. However, there are some people that believe that this sighting reported by Jason is just part of a, a, a bigger story involving the family's involvement in Nicholas's case. So that brings us to the final theory about the case. When Frederick was arrested, he claimed he believed someone in the family had killed Nicholas. He said he always felt as if the family knew he wasn't and couldn't be Nicholas, and they only accepted him because it helped hide the truth that Nicholas had died in the house. Now, there is some evidence to support this to include the bruising Nicholas was seen with at school after Jason moved back into the house. Some people believe that Jason, who also struggled with substance abuse, may have gotten in an argument after Nicholas returned home with an attitude about the long walk and Jason not waking up their mom. This argument may have turned physical and something happened and Nicholas was killed and Jason covered it up with the missing persons report. It would also explain the reported sighting of Nicholas by Jason in September so no one could corroborate the story and it may have been an attempt by Jason to throw investigators off the track. So this is this is one where that Frederick actually comes out and will make multiple accusations towards the family. I think he said that when Carrie came over to Spain, he felt immediately that Carrie didn't believe he was Nicholas, but that she still accepted him as Nicholas. And then for the entire time that she was in Spain before they got all the paperwork done and then she flew back to Texas with him, she was kind of telling him his life story. Like, you remember when this happened and you remember when that happened and showed up pictures this is the house you grew up in and and different things and so that can be looked at two two different ways one it could be that they honestly thought that he had gone through this traumatic shock and after being gone for three years involved in this child sex ring he was going to need to be reacquainted with his old life and so some people look at it as an innocent thing and some people look at it as and Frederick would say that he felt as if he was being instructed on what his life was and, and how to act like Nicholas when he got back. So, again, two schools of thought. You can believe either one however you want. But the idea that the family could be involved, it doesn't mean that they plotted to kill Nicholas. I can clearly see a scenario where Nicholas returns home just pissed off at Jason because he wanted Jason to wake up his mother to come pick him up from this basketball court and Jason wouldn't do it he just would say to him on the phone like I'm not gonna wake up mom she's got you know worked an overnight shift last night she's got to work an overnight shift tonight you can walk home so I mean if typical kid it's gonna take him roughly 30 45 minutes to walk that mile and a half home and if he's continually getting himself more worked up and more pissed off he's going to come into that house you know like a, a like tipping a ticking time bomb and i'm sure at the same time jason who's been brought to this house to try to keep nicholas in line he's probably almost ready for this uh, situation and Again, it just could have escalated very quickly and to the point in which there was some harm done to Nicholas, whether it's intentional or not intentional. 
you know, could have gotten shoved down and hit his head. Could have been you know, put into some type of a headlock because it was out of control and he ended up suffocating uh, Nicholas. I mean, there's multiple different ways in which the death could be somewhat accidental. And then they realize to avoid any future legal problems, it would be easier just to have Nicholas disappear. And, and again, that's just Frederick, who lived with them for five months, just got this feeling like they knew all along that he couldn't be Nicholas. And, and he felt it was because they knew that Nicholas was dead and that they had some responsibility in Nicholas's death. So, again, that's taking words from a con man who spent his almost his entire life lying to people. So some people take that with an extremely small grain of salt. But, but then the, you have to take into account, you know, Frederick's sudden appearance in 1997... And the family's reaction does not make this theory defunct. Some people will say, okay, well, if they killed Nicholas, why would they entertain this idea that Frederick could be Nicholas? And there are many of those who believe that even if the family knew Nicholas was dead, they would now have to be faced with a difficult choice. Because they can't come out and say, it can't be Nicholas, he's dead. Because as a family, they would have no way of knowing Nicholas is dead unless they or someone they knew killed him. So they had to, at the very least, fly to Spain to see if this person was in fact Nicholas. So, again, if you fall back on the theory that Nicholas's family had something to do with his death and disappearance, the introduction of somebody claiming to be Nicholas, this is a, a very double-edged sword for the family. Because, in some sense, this is an out. You can basically replace Nicholas with this kid from Spain... And if you can manage to pull it off, nobody's going to know that the original Nicholas died at the family's hands. They're just going to assume that what this Nicholas from Spain is the actual real Nicholas. Therefore, there's no reason to look at Jason or anybody else for the death and dis disappearance of Nicholas. And there's other people who say, okay, well, yes, you see it, but you know nobody's ever going to firmly believe you. And this is just going to open you up to more speculation. So this is where it gets a little tricky for me. So I think that if Nicholas's family was responsible for his death, it would have been a lot safer for them to de denounce Frederick in Spain and never bring him to America. There were plenty of red flags. In fact, Frederick could barely speak English. He didn't look like Nicholas. He had different color eyes and didn't know some of the basic non-public information about his life before his abduction. I think Frederick himself even, I can't remember, there's a documentary out on this that I that I saw years ago, uh, I think it's called The Imposter, and I want to say it was either there, or maybe it was an article that I read that Frederick said he was surprised that he was able to carry on the ruse as far as it did, like he never expected to be actually getting on a plane and going to Texas, and part of that is, I mean, just the fact he doesn't look like Nicholas, I mean... He looks like a 23-year-old man and not like a 16-year-old boy, and he doesn't have the right hair color, eye color, facial features, anything like that. And I don't care how much you say somebody goes through plastic surgery, eye color change, hair color change, whatever it might be, they're not going to stop learning how to speak English. His English was his primary language for 13 years of his life. Even if you're in a foreign country for three years, you're still going to 
be speaking English, it's still I have to imagine it's still going to be getting used uh, no matter where you are. I've been to Europe on several occasions and most people do speak English. So the fact that all of a sudden he's struggling to speak English should have been a major sign. And then all of the information that Frederick got on Nicholas, he got off the internet. So these were all public things about what Nicholas liked, what he liked to do, anything like, along those lines. But he's not going to remember what he got for Christmas two years ago. That's not going to be public information. So a, a simple five to ten questions questionnaire of things only Nicholas would know, I would have thought something along those lines would have pretty quickly brought about the fact that this guy claiming to be Nicholas is not. So again, that's where I fall back and I'm not 100% sure on if the family's involved or not because if I'm the family and the last thing I want to do is bring somebody back that I know can't be my missing son, it's just going to draw more attention to the case, it's going to draw more attention to me. It would be pretty simple to go over there, realize he doesn't look like my son, ask him 10 questions only my son would know when he fails all of that then I demand you know, fingerprints something along those lines to prove that he is who he says he is before he even comes back but the fact that they didn't do that that the sister was positively identified him and they did everything without any fingerprints or anything like that to get him back to the United States again it just I don't know how to feel I'm on kind of both sides of the fence on this one and so either out of pure desperation or some sort of plan, the Barclays brought Frederick over, and despite many more red flags, it wasn't until the FBI got a court order that any official testing was done on Frederick to confirm his identity. It was said that Beverly refused to cooperate with DNA testing to prove they were related, but she was a drug addict at the time, and many thought she was worried about a toxicology screen being run on her blood. And at the end of the day, this case is about a missing child. Yes, Nicholas was troubled, but many teens are, and they don't deserve to go missing. No matter the circumstances for his disappearance and likely death, Nicholas deserves to be found, and if someone can be brought to justice for what happened, I hope for his sake and his family's sake it does happen. And this is what bothered me most about this case, is I look for interesting true crime cases, solved or unsolved, and a lot of my Google searches are literally interesting true crime cases or true crime cases with a twist whatever it might be and this one comes up and there's very little information about Nicholas Barclay and his actual missing persons investigation slash information about him in general almost everything you find on this case is centered around this guy that pretended to be him for five months so Nicholas had 13 years of life and then now has been missing for almost 30 years. And there's very little attention brought to that. But there's a ton of attention brought to the fact that some guy pretended to be him for five to six months of his life. So I just want to make sure that when I cover a case like this, that the main thing here is Nicholas Barclay is missing. This other guy, he was you know, did his time. He is remorseful for what he did. But that doesn't further the story of what actually happened to Nicholas at all. So as it stands, Nicholas is one of thousands of missing children who have never been found. His story can be found via the Charlie Project or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He was wearing purple pants, a white shirt, and a pink backpack on the day he went missing. 
He also had four homemade tattoos, which included a J on his left shoulder, a T on his left hand, and the letters L and N on his left ankle. An age-progressed photo of Nicholas was done in 2006, showing what he would look like around age 26, and Nicholas would be 42 years old today. So, again, this is a case about a, a troubled teen that went missing. I'm not faulting the San Antonio Police Department for how this investigation was handled. This is pretty typical even to today for how a missing persons or runaway report would be filed with the similar circumstances. A, a child who is a habitual runaway and has had issues with the law just not going to be treated the same as, as a child who hasn't. And whether that's right or wrong, some people might argue that it's wrong, but it is part of trying to handle situations with, with limited police resources. And at the end of the day, what I just think is that there needs to be more attention on the actual Nicholas Barclay side of his story and not as much on the imposter side. You know, it adds a really interesting twist to the story. I get that. But again, at the end of the day, that was five months of, of that guy's life. And Nicholas Barclay only got 13 years that we know of on this planet of the 42 that he should at this point. But that is it for the story of Nicholas Barclay. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.